0: the musical man the podcast that shines new light on the tony award for best musical each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration and this week we'll be discussing dream girls
1: ladies and gentlemen the apollo theater continues our legendary talent contest
0: How are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. We have Patty and Benny in the booth. Thank you so much, Patty and Benny, for your your hard work, I thank you as always. Uh, we have a few points to address here in this opening segment. Let's begin with my thoughts regarding this first trailer for *In the Heights*, the film adaptation of Lin Manuel Miranda's Broadway musical. I loved that trailer. It gave me goosebumps, and I what here's what I really appreciated about that trailer. It made it very very clear from the outset that we are absolutely going to be in. We're getting a musical. We're getting a musical where people are singing and dancing, and the marketing, for once, the Hollywood marketing machine is not trying to obscure that fact so that it can appeal to a more heteronormative male audience, and I really appreciate that. And the other thing that really struck me is how, obviously, this movie is embracing the surreality of movie musicals, the ability of a movie musical to bend reality to its whims, to sort of embrace the magic realism, I suppose is what I'm trying to say, of a musical, and how how it affects how we see the world, how we move through the world. There's a moment in that trailer where two characters run up the side of a building, and it's, you know, it's just little touches like that. That is the sort of magic from films like Singing in the Rain and An American in Paris that people want to return to again and again. It's the reason why those movies have stood the test of time, and I feel that by embracing that convention of the classic movie musical, I have a feeling that In the Heights will have a better chance of Standing that same test of time, because it's it's unabashed. It, it, it's wearing its heart on its sleeve. That's very clear. By watching this first trailer, you get that sense. And I'm very excited. We need a very warm, emotional, open-hearted movie musical right now. Not one that's cynical or points out its own conventions. We just need something that is real, that's coming from a very true, singular place, and I really, I am very excited for it. It is essentially the antithesis of the Cats film, and I'm excited for that in my own way, I suppose, in a very different way, but I don't think we're going to be, <laughs> I don't think Cats, <laughs> I don't think Cats is going to be hitting us, you know, where it hurts. I don't think it's going to be really going for the feels, if you know what I mean. Well, you know when I had the feels while watching Cats the film? Oh, when I was watching Cats the film. I, I knew that I was feeling all of the feels when I saw that cat's tail coming out of its butt. But enough about my fetish regarding cat tails coming out of buttholes, <laughs> preventing poop from coming out of them so as to create an excess of blockage. Oh, ooh, how it gets me hard to think about it. I want to move on to my other point. I recently saw someone announce the conclusion of their own podcast. They essentially said on Twitter, you know, I'm bringing this podcast of mine to a close. And they cited how hard it is to produce a show each and every week, a brand new episode each and every week. And I can relate to that struggle, especially right now in the gloomy gray Chicago winter season. And I, we put a lot of work into the main feed and our Patreon material. Is my voice going? Does my voice sound weird? Eh? And that work often leaves me feeling worn out. I know Patty and Benny are worn out trying to catch up with all of this material. And especially considering, you know, we all have our day jobs. We all have our side gigs, isn't that true? Patty and Benny getting some vigorous nods and that's why I try to thank you not just with words but with actions. So <laughs> gonna give you a real nice Christmas gift this year. I'm gonna tell you that right now. It's a constant tug of war isn't it between the desire to create and the need, the the desperate need to just relax and not do anything or just sort of bum around. But if this podcast brings you the listener, Even a little bit of happiness, I'm willing to get thrown about every now and then amidst that tug of war, that push and pull. And just to make this about you, the listener, if you have a project that is difficult that you enjoy, but is at the same time difficult, that takes up, you know, the, those precious few hours that you have beyond your other responsibilities, I would just say that if it is making other people happy, and especially if it if it does bring you satisfaction, if you can look at the project and uh, safely say, in all honesty, that it's not bringing you the happiness you thought it would, then I would say that it's time to let it go. But I just want you to know that if you are satisfied by it, then that work does, it has a payoff, and it is that satisfaction. And also beyond that, it's the happiness of the people who get to consume it, right? I mean, we all listen to, I hope this isn't the only podcast you listen to. We listen to a number of podcasts between myself, Patty, Benny. These shows, there's this joke that gets thrown around a lot about how podcasts are just content, they're sort of disposable, you sort of chew them up and spit them out, and then you wait for your next serving to come around the next week, the following week. And I think that's very that's very dismissive, and artists, creators tend to be very dismissive in regards to their output, and I don't think we need to be leaning into that very much. I don't think we need to be self-important, we don't need to be like elevating ourselves, putting ourselves on a pedestal, but at the same time, you know, take your work seriously and be proud of what you do, and don't think of it as just content, I don't think of this show as just content, And pet- and Benny are vigorously shaking their heads not nodding shaking their heads they they're in agreement that this show is not just content and it's not because we think this show is important necessarily it's just that it's important because it makes you happy so thank you very much especially in this this Christmas season oh this Christmas season the holiday that everybody celebrates right ooh war on christmas <laughs> What if in that one moment I revealed to you, what if in that one moment when you were feeling so good about you know art and culture and your community, I I threw the rug at you. I didn't pull it out from under your feet. I threw a rug at your fucking head and I revealed that I was nothing more than a David Mamet, Dennis Miller. Oh, who's the guy that writes Dilbert Scott Adams? What if I was one of those guys? Ooh, what a scary reveal in this Christmas time (laughs) season. Okay, so that's our opening segment. This week we're talking about Dreamgirls. Let's get the show facts regarding Dreamgirls. Show me the show facts. Dreamgirls was a 1982 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on December 20th, 1981 at the Imperial Theater and ran for 1,521 performances. The book was written by Tom Ian. Let's get a bit of info regarding Tom Ian, shall we? Now, before his work on Dreamgirls, Ian was known for writing body-off-Broadway plays, including, get a load of these titles, I love them, Women Behind Bars, The White Whore and the Bit Player, Why Hannah's Skirt Won't Stay Down, and The Dirtiest Show in Town, which was later adapted into The Dirtiest Musical in Town. More on this in a bit. General bit of trivia for fans of general trivia bits Ian went on to collaborate with Alan Menken on *Kicks*, the showgirl musical, which would have depicted the story of the Rockettes during World War II. That show was never fully produced, though a few of its songs have been performed publicly. Ian died at the age of 50 in 1991, though his Wikipedia page lists the cause of death as quote, AIDS-related complications, quote, his obituary in the LA Times makes no mention of AIDS. Instead, a family spokesperson Person named Alan Eichler cites the cause as cardiac arrest. Ian was gay, and while I'm not one to be suspicious of all family spokespeople, this reeks of erasure to me. In that same obituary, it's mentioned Ian had written a Dreamgirls screenplay that was fully set to be produced in 1992. Talk about what could have been. Who was going to be in that movie? The Mind Reels. Let's move on. The music was by Henry Krieger. Henry Krieger, oh yes. Let's get a bit of information regarding Henry Krieger. Oh, I don't know about this voice. Seems a bit reductive. Seems. (laughs) Other Henry Krieger credits include The Tap Dance Kid and Sideshow, which we will be covering in the future at some, you know, non-determined point. The four new songs featured in the 2006 Dreamgirls film were written by Krieger. Those would be Love You, I Do, with lyrics by Sadeh Garrett, Patience, with lyrics by Willie Real, Perfect World, lyrics by Sadeh Garrett, and Listen, lyrics by Ann Previn, and additional music by Scott Cutler and Beyonce. Knowles. Originally, this was written as a solo for Dina Jones' Listen. I'm talking about the I Need You to Listen about in regards to the song Listen. Are you listening? Okay, great. That song was written as a solo for Dina Jones, the character Dina Jones, and the song was then incorporated into the 2017 London production, where it was turned into a duet for Dina Jones and Effie White. Three of these new songs, minus Perfect World, were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. I think my grammar there was a little confusing. So there were four new songs written for Dreamgirls. Three of the four were nominated for that Academy Award. The only one that was not nominated was Perfect World. Okay, I think we got that on. I think we got that all smoothed out. Oh yeah. And all those songs lost out to Melissa Etheridge's I Need to Wake Up from an Inconvenient Truth. I, I have no idea how that song goes, and I refuse to look it up. Krieger wrote a pair of songs for Hats the 2007 musical review about the Red Hat Society. This is not to be confused with Hats, the 20-minute children's musical we have discussed in the past. That show featured a character named Ima Milliner. Remember? Of course you do. Krieger also wrote Take the Flame, which served as the opening and closing theme for the 1994 New York Gay Games, otherwise known as Gay Games 4. And finally, from Krieger's Wikipedia page, hold on to your fucking hats. In 2002, Krieger also wrote the score for the. The wonderful World of Disney's television version of Sleeping Beauty, with lyrics by Susan Birkenhead and starring Whitney Houston, quote... Could someone please correct this immediately because it's a wild and confounding statement that is not based in reality. I spent 30 seconds googling this statement. It's not based in reality. Lyrics by Tom Ian. Oh, that's right. Ian and Krieger's first collaboration was a musical adaptation of The Dirtiest Show in Town, which was titled, appropriately enough, and you should already know this because I already said it once, The Dirtiest Musical in Town. Yes. Carter was, Nell Carter, I should say, Nell Carter was a member of that show's cast, and she served as the inspiration for what would become Dreamgirls. Over the course of its development, Dreamgirls went by many names, including One Night Only, Big Dreams, and Project Number Nine. Carter eventually left the production when she was cast on the soap opera Ryan's Hope and the sitcom Gimme a Break. The director of the original production of Dreamgirls was not only, not only then, Michael Bennett my grammar today. Let's take a good 10 seconds to consider how this musical about black characters with black women at its center was written entirely by white men. I mean, they wrote a great musical, but it's all just so exhausting. You know, let's take 10 seconds to think about that. Hi, still there? Okay, good, we all had a good think. Okay, all right, we'll talk about that even more so in the future. Don't you worry about that. I mean, do I really need to relitigate why it's so exhausting? Of course I do, but we will save all of that for my final thoughts as I already said but I want your final thoughts now I want them now no that's not how the final thoughts work and put that back in your pants weirdo weirdo musical director Yolanda Segovia choreographer Michael Bennett and Michael Peters Peters is the only black member of the production team for the record scenic design Robin Wagner lighting design Theron Musser sound design Otis Munderlow Munderlow I apologize costume design Thione Thayoni, The Aldredge, and the original Broadway cast included Oba Babatunde, Clavant, Derricks, Loretta Devine, who has 101 film and TV credits on IMDb, including what I believe was, I think this is the project that I've seen her in most recently, Waiting to Exhale, if you're a fan of that film. We also have Ben Harney, Jennifer Holliday. Now, Jennifer Holiday actually quit the production, not once, but twice. She initially left because her character, Effie White, died at the end of Act. Act one. The show was rewritten and Holiday eventually returned, only to quit a second time upon realizing Effie's story had been diminished to make more room for the character Dina Jones. Michael Bennett agreed to keep rewriting the show if Holiday would stick with it, and she agreed. Everyone knew they were lucky to have her, I suppose. And let's round out this cast by citing Cheryl Lee Ralph, Deborah Burrell, Vondi Curtis Hall, and Tony Franklin. Tony nods. Here are the Tony Awards that Dream took home. It won- Best Book of a Musical, Tom Ian. Best Actor in a Musical, Ben Harney. Best Actress in a Musical, Jennifer Holliday. Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Clavon Derricks. Best Lighting Design, Theron Musser. Best Choreography, Michael Bennett and Michael Peters. And it was additionally nominated for Best Musical, of course. Best Original Score, Henry Krieger. And Tom Ian, Best Actress in a Musical, Cheryl Lee Ralph. Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Oba Babatunde. Best Scenic Design, Robin Wagner. Best Costume Design, Thayoni. Thayoni. V. Aldridge, And Best Direction of a Musical, Michael Bennett. So in total, 13 nominations and 6 awards at the end of the evening. Let's talk about the plot. I spent a fair amount of time over this past week wondering if I could detail this show's plot off the top of my head. No notes! No point of reference beyond my own memory. I came this close to testing myself, mainly because I've just been so damn worn out and taking notes can be a slog. But then I thought, no. My music Minions deserve a structured, well-thought-out plot summary, but I'm not going to be relying on Wikipedia this time around, no! These notes are spilling out of me as fast and fluid as I can type them, so let's hope they are accurate. So, lights up! It's the 60s! Yeah, baby, yeah! How am I doing so far? Effie White, Dina Jones, and Laurel Robinson are longtime friends who, along with Effie's songwriter brother Cece White, have formed a singing group known as the Dreamettes. The Cremettes? No, 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 no. The Dreamettes! They travel from Chicago to Harlem's Apollo Theater to compete in a talent contest, the winner of which will receive a performance run at the theater. The contest is headlined by iconic crooner James Thunder Early, otherwise known as Jimmy. And Jimmy has a problem. His backup singers have quit on him. This would appear to be a recurring issue for Jimmy, a married man who can't help but fall into bed with the women who work for him. Jimmy's manager, Marty Madison, is at his wit's end over this latest debacle, but a car salesman named Curtis Taylor Jr. swoops in to eagerly provide a suggestion. Why not hire the Dreamettes, whom he met maybe two minutes prior to introducing this plan. Marty is skeptical, but Jimmy is desperate, and so a deal is struck. Not only will the Dreamettes serve as backup at the talent show, they'll also hit the road with Jimmy for a ten-week tour. Dina, Laurel, and Curtis are over the moon in the face of this good fortune, especially in light of the fact that they didn't win the talent show, which was rigged from the outset. Effie, on the other hand, is unconvinced. She dislikes the idea of playing second fiddle to someone, even if it is a famous figure like Jimmy Early, but Curtis gets her on board by tossing a wink and a smile her way. Effie is quite smitten. She's over the moon for Curtis. Watch out, Effie. Curtis will only break your heart. He's an opportunistic creep. Soon after the tour begins, Jimmy makes it clear that he wants to sleep with Laurel, who has just turned 18. Yikes! Laurel does her best to ward off Jimmy's increasingly aggressive advances, but after a while, she simply can't help herself. She's very, very attracted to Jimmy and believes that one day he will leave his wife and marry her. Watch out, Laurel! Jimmy will only break your heart! He's an opportunistic creep! Cece writes a song for Jimmy called Cadillac Car that initially finds a fair amount of success, but when it's stolen and reappropriated for a white artist, a young songwriter is left crestfallen and disillusioned. Curtis assures Cece that if If they work together, they'll be able to tackle the music business and make it work for them. But only if they're willing to play a little dirty. DJs receive bribes, shady deals are made, and drugs are involved somehow. There's a reference to drugs in Act 2, and I'm not quite sure how drugs got Curtis to the top, but rest assured when I say that drugs were in the mix. With time, Curtis's relationship with Marty, who as we'll recall is Jimmy's manager, becomes increasingly strained. Marty believes black artists will never be able to cross over and achieve the kind of success white artists find, which Curtis views as an inability to change with the times. When Curtis manages to book Jimmy at a Miami club, that is historically known for stonewalling acts of color, Marty sees it as little more than a power grab. He quits in a rage, leaving an open manager spot that Curtis is all too willing to fill. Times are a-changin' changing, right and fast. Curtis becomes determined to rework the Dreamettes into their own act, rebranding them as The Dreams while making Dina the lead singer. This devastates the former lead singer, Effie, who has always prided herself on having the best voice in the group, but a fair amount of consolation and outright pressure convinces her to stay on. Peace has been achieved, but the peace does not last long. As Dina's star rises and begins to outshine everyone around her, Effie becomes convinced that she and Curtis are having an affair. Dina insists this is not true, and it isn't, even though Curtis clearly wants to sleep with her. Effie's growing anger results in a series of public and private tantrums, until she is eventually fired and replaced by a skinnier, more anonymous singer named Michelle. Effie begs Curtis to stay with her, but it's too late. The dreams are moving on, baby. Act 2, the 70s, baby. Yeah, baby, yeah. Dina Jones and the dreams are bigger than ever. They're fucking icons. They're rolling in dough, and Effie is wallowing in the gutter. She can't book a gig to save her life, and that's kind of a big problem, as she She now has a daughter named Magic. A daughter named Magic, you say? But how could she have a daughter named Magic? Who is the father of this daughter named Magic? Wait, wasn't Effie complaining about a mysterious pain at the end of Act 1? And Curtis was her lover for a long stretch of time. (gasps) Could it be? Could Curtis be the father of the daughter named Magic? You know, you have to stop jumping ahead of me. It really affects the flow of these plot summaries. But also, yes, Curtis is the father of the daughter named Magic. Duh, duh, doy, doy, doy. There's a lot of business between Jimmy and Laurel that just boils down to these people are not meant to be together, but neither of them can be bothered to accept that, so they're making each other miserable. Jimmy can't leave his wife and be with Laurel because he's obsessed with his failing career. He's getting older, his new songs are bland as fuck, and no one is turning out for his appearances. It's a bummer, and he eventually snaps while performing at a national Democratic fundraiser. He improvises a rap, which is actually quite delightful, and drops his pants in front of what I assume is a crowd of thousands. Is Curtis a fan of this decision? No, he is not. Jimmy is fired. Laurel leaves Jimmy once and for all, and Jimmy is, well, I know he died of a drug overdose in the movie adaptation. Hold on, I actually am going to see what Wikipedia has to say about this, because Jimmy has this big, caterwauling moment before vanishing from the show, and I'm not clear as to what happens to him. Oh, well, according to Wikipedia, he simply, quote, fades into obscurity, quote, fair enough. In Effie news, Effie has teamed up with Marty to try and restart her career, but her old diva habits continue to plague her. Marty gives it to her straight. If she can't find a way to set aside her ego and put in the work like everyone else, she'll never make it, even if her talent is undeniable. Effie, having snapped back to reality, makes a vow to change for the better. And talk about good timing, here comes her brother Cece with a brand new song for her. See, Curtis has been changing Cece's compositions, to reflect a new sound he's been developing, which is essentially disco. We're saying that Curtis invented disco, much like Tata invented movies in Ragtime, and that really pisses CC off. Only Effie can sing his latest composition the way it was meant to be sung. Uh. The siblings make amends and record the song, which is called One Night Only. When it begins to gain a bit of traction on the charts, Curtis lashes out by having Dina record a disco version that proves to be much more successful. Dina isn't aware that her Her track is in competition with Effie's, which seems highly unlikely when you consider how the press would have a field day with that story. But when she discovers Curtis's deception, it falls in line with how he's generally been treating her. Sure, they love each other, they got married, for crying out loud, they have a life together, but it's a hollow, miserable life, one predicated on the idea that Dina will always be on a leash. She's been champing at the bit to become an actress, but Curtis has kept her touring for what feels like an eternity. Enough is enough! Curtis is thoroughly defeated when CeCe, Effie, and a team of lawyers show up to provide an ultimatum. Either work with us to ensure that Effie's version of One Night Only gets a fair shot in the marketplace, or have it revealed that your musical empire was built on backdoor dealings and, uh, you know, drugs. You know what you did with the drugs? The drugs! Curtis reminds CeCe that they rode that drug wave together, but CeCe is like, eh, I'll go to jail if it means you'll be there too. I'm willing to throw myself on the grenade. Curtis concedes, allowing the Dreams to break up so that Dina can leave him and pursue acting, and everyone is generally happy. Oh, and uh, Effie tells Dina that Curtis is the father of the daughter named Magic, but let's just keep that between you and me, all right, Dina? Shh, mum's the word, Dina, mum's the word. The show ends with a farewell performance by the Dreams, with Effie stepping on stage to reunite with her friends. Well, Michelle isn't her friend. Michelle is the one who replaced her. I doubt they'll ever be friends, but you get what I'm saying. I will never be friends, Michelle. The end. P.S. Wikipedia makes mention of a character named Jackie. My question is, who Jackie? Curtis falls in love with her, but I always thought he fell in love with Michelle. Am I crazy? Is that wrong? Who Jackie? Also, the list of characters includes someone named Chris? Who the fuck is Chris? Someone please enlighten me. I thought you said you weren't going to look at the Wikipedia summary, Jonathan, and I thought I told you to eat my butt. Oh, I'm sorry, did I forget you? Did I forget you when I was telling people to eat my butt? Oh, I'm sorry that I forgot you when I was telling everyone else to eat my butt. Here, let me do that now. My apologies. Eat my butt. Many have assumed the plot of Dreamgirls was inspired by the history of Diana Ross and the Supremes, though for legal purposes, Michael Bennett and the rest of the production team consistently denied those rumors. Bennett specifically told Cheryl Lee Ralph to not imitate Ross when portraying Dina Jones, as to do so could result in a lawsuit. It's not clear if Diana Ross ever saw Dreamgirls, and if she did, whether she liked it or not, though she did perform the song Family during a freeze Central Park Concert in 1983. Mary Wilson, the longest-running member of the Supremes, did love the musical and cited it in the title of her memoir, Dream Girl, My Life as a Supreme. Tom Ian, for his part, denied that any one Motown singer or a group stood at the center of his libretto, insisting he never grew up listening to the Supremes. His inspirations included the Shirelles, the Chiffons, Martha and the Vandellas, Little Richard, and Stevie Wonder. It's understandable why everyone would get on the same page to avoid a legal dispute, but Dream Girls is quite obviously based on the Supremes, and... Every parallel and commonality is outlined on Wikipedia, and by the time you reach the end of their list, it's sort of impossible to accept any other theory. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1982 original Broadway cast album. I watched the 1982 Tony Awards performance of And I Am Telling You I'm Not Going. Wait a minute, should that be the 1981 original Broadway cast album? Oh, I think it should be, because it technically opened on... Yep, 1981, so I apologize, I cited that incorrectly. The original Broadway cast album, that represents 1981, the year 1981, okay. And the And I watched, okay, so we're on track now. (laughs) My brain boiling over. I watched the 1982 Tony Awards performance of And I Am Telling You I'm Not Going. That is required viewing. No exceptions. Educate yourself if you have not seen it. I also listened to the 2001 New York Concert cast album, which features Lilius White as Effie, Audra McDonald as Dina, Heather Headley as Laurel, Norm Lewis as Curtis, Billy Porter as Jimmy, Darius Tejas as Cece, and Tamara Tooney as Michelle. And then I also listened to the 2017 London cast album, which features Amber Riley as Effie, Lise LaFontaine as Dina. Ibnalo Jack as Laurel Joe Aaron Reed as Curtis Adam J. Bernard as Jimmy Tyrone Huntley Huntley? Yes, great. As Cece and Lily Fraser as Michelle. You are, of course, required to sit down with the original Broadway cast album before all else. It's the Rosetta Stone, the Urtext. It preserved the awesome power of Jennifer Holliday for future generations, and so attention must be paid. I'm sure my being tired during a a 7am work commute contributed to this reaction, but I straight up felt like I was going to start crying while listening to this album for the first time in years. It gets to me. It cuts through me like a knife cuts through gay butter. Then, after you're done listening to that, you simply must hear the 2001 concert album, as that provides the full picture. Keep in mind that the O.B.C. album omitted about 20—no, not 20—60%! Goodness gracious, 60% of the score! So you're missing out on a lot if you don't engage with that concert album. And I mean, for God's sake, Billy Porter as Jimmy, he's fucking astounding, it's a can't-miss. As far as the 2017 London album is concerned, eh, you can skip that. I am a fan of Amber Riley, and while I understand she's been training for this part in in one sense or another since her days on Glee, it doesn't change the fact that she sounds too young and polished as Effie. There are hints at the kind of world-weary rage, that rawness that you would expect to hear from this character, but overall it sounds like an impression, not a performance. Am I being glib? I don't mean to be glib. Check out the London album if you wish, but no, it's not required reading, quote-unquote. It's kind of boring overall, and Adam J. Bernard is far too angry as Jimmy. His version of Jimmy is borderline homicidal. I am not a fan. I did not watch the 2006 film adaptation as I have seen it several times already. Would I recommend it? Of course, it's a delight. There are some clunky moments and they cut almost all of the non-diegetic music from the score, which is a bummer, but the cast is excellent and the movie looks fantastic. The editing gets a bit too choppy here and there, but the cinematography manages to win out despite this problem. Fun fact regarding the film, DreamWorks and the Tams Whitmerk Music Library spent 250 give or take, to pay for the licensing fees of every non-professional production of Dreamgirls that was mounted throughout the calendar year of 2006. That's over 50 school, community, and regional theater productions. I love that. Now, as I said, I initially thought about, you know, sort of uh, improvising off the top of my head when it came to the plot summary for Girls, and I didn't do that. I actually sat down and I wrote it all out, but here's something I do wanna test myself on this week. I wanna see if I can just do this and have it be about as polished, about as insightful as anything else that I would normally be bringing to the table. So for the songs, for the score dissection part of this episode, I am basically going to be speaking off the top of my head, just sort of pulling from memory, anything and everything that comes to mind, and I hope that you like that. I'm not trying to apologize for it in advance, it comes off a little sloppier than my usual dissections. I'm not apologizing for anything. I trust myself. I believe in myself. And now, we're going to talk about Fake Your Way to the Top. The game
1: of hits goes around and
0: around,
1: but you can fake your way to the top, round and around. Try that part, baby. Round and around. Fake your way to the top. Fit right in there, sweetheart You can make your way to the top
0: is just such a charming introduction. It's this great moment between Jimmy and all of the members of the Dreamettes where this is the beginning of their relationship. And there's an innocence here. There isn't any of that backstage drama, that toxicity that they will later have to deal with that's developed over the course of years. Oh, so many tours, so many crummy venues. Oh, so much backbiting. Here, it seems like they are really enjoying each other. And I enjoy that. I just like the fact that it's Jimmy teaching these women this song at a piano it's so it's so simple and it really is that nuts and bolts backstage stuff that i really appreciate it's actually one of my favorite parts of the high school musical films when those kids just sort of stand around a piano and learn a song but the magic of a musical is that whereas it would take me so long to learn a song the dreams they learn it within seconds and i love the interplay between jimmy and the women he's you know he's kind of feeding them the parts and each woman is sort of testing themselves out in conjunction with this melody and then Effie comes in bound and determined to reiterate look I'm no fucking like second fiddle I'm no second banana if I wanted to I could blow you out of any fucking venue we plan to play in and Jimmy's reaction is oh shit I knew you'd have it I love that moment because it, it's just that that recognition of game recognizing game I suppose and I love that and when we transition into the full performance especially in the movie I remember that being Really, a really great... I think there's like a turn of the camera and suddenly we've just gone from the rehearsal straight into a full performance. And I actually think the tempo... In the movie, or maybe Cadillac car is faster tempo-wise in the movie. Anyway, the movie kind of has some fun with that stuff, really kind of making it barrel forward and have this sort of locomotive power and this spirit. But Fake Your Way to the Top is just, it's a lot of fun, and it sort of fills you with this this confidence, this optimism for <laughs> these relationships. And you kind of have to start there, right? You have to, it's very realistic, the idea that all of these performers are being sort of thrown together, and they are they are bringing a lot of trust and optimism to this collaboration, this project, because they're counting on it. It's it's the, it's the a matter of survival for them in this business that they need to work together. And there is this genuine spirit of, yes, we can do this. We can work together. And then it all kind of goes to shit because Jimmy's a lecherous pervert, and everybody's jealous of everybody. Oh, it all becomes a disaster. But that's what happens when you're in a tight-knit performing collaborative group oh boy oh boy so uh, yes figure way to the top that those are my thoughts let's talk about cadillac car slash the cadillac car reprise which is by the white group dave and the sweethearts cadillac
2: car james thunder early and the dreamettes
1: oh got me a cadillac
0: So cattle is meant to sort of demonstrate this idea that in the 60s and the 70s, well, not just in those two decades, I mean, of course, everything that came before it, everything that came after it, we are expounding in the, on this idea that black artists, people of color who try to participate in the world of music, any sort of sphere of the pop culture zeitgeist, I should say, they are consistently watching as their, their ideas, their inventions, really, they, you know, they're moving forward and striking out all on their own and they're, they're exploring new territory and then right behind them, nipping at their fucking heels, are these white producers, managers, and artists who really wanted to just take advantage of that and turn it into something that is more palatable for, you know, a mainstream audience, a majority audience. And that's what happens here. CeCe writes a song, a perfectly lively song called Cadillac Car, and then it gets morphed into this sort of... Uh, soft beach bum radio bullshit, this like sand between your toes, borderline like fucking catatonic Margaritaville Jimmy Buffett nonsense. And I th- it's one of the funnier jokes in the show when you know these goofy white people come out and they sing this softer version of Cadillac Car. It's a it's a big laugh, but it's a big laugh because it speaks to a very harsh truth. And it's just I when I think about staging Dream Girls, first of all, I imagine it having about 10,000 light cues. I wouldn't rely so much on big set pieces, physical set pieces, but I would be obsessed with the lighting scheme, the whole lighting design of the show. And when it comes to Cadillac Car, I want those I want those white goofballs from Dave and the Sweethearts, which is such a perfect fake band name. Band. <laughs> I want them standing on stage, and I want them basically standing on stage long after they finish this reprise of Cadillac Car. I want them to be like odd mannequins just sort of frozen in place. And I want the black characters to be able to sort of talk around them, walk around them, study them, sort of look upon them in sort of frustration and disdain. And I want them to be able to sort of just look at them as what they are, which are props. These sort of odd robotic props that don't have any soul, no passion. They're just thieves. And then one by one, of course, we would have these white actors leave the stage as the scene goes on. But I really want us to sit beyond the initial laugh, I guess. I just want us to be able to really stop and consider who these people are, that they're not just like, a gag. They don't they're not just a gag. These are people who are allowing themselves even if they don't know it, they are allowing themselves to be used by a process and a machine that takes from other people. And by other people, I mean people of color who do not have the same foothold in the industry, who do not have the same advantages or privileges. I just need, I need the audience to sort of consider that more. I need us to see these white people through the eyes of the characters of color. And so that's my Cadillac car thoughts. I'm not gonna end. (laughs) See, what happens when I don't have notes is whenever I come to the end of my thoughts, I just say something along the lines of, well, that's it. That's all I have to say about that song. (laughs) Maybe I should just lean into that. Uh, Patty and Benny, can we get a bit of Step Into the Bad Side? Step Into the Bad
1: Side. Step Into the Bad Side. Gonna take a meal. Step into the bad side
0: to the bad side. This comes directly out of that Cadillac car reprise and this is where Curtis sort of gets the idea that, you know, I am going to be in charge from now on. If we are going to have our music stolen from us, there is clearly something wrong and we need to start acting in ways that are more subversive and really cut to the quick. We have to cut through all the bullshit and we have to figure out how to succeed at any cost. And there's this really eerie lyric, this lyrical line that he has directed towards Cece, he directs it towards Cece, and he keeps saying, because Cece is so frustrated, he says, Cece, you have me to think for you now. He's really asserting himself. Marty is not incorrect when he says that Curtis is, you know, this snake that is just out to grab whatever he can. And to a certain extent, I don't think Curtis is a totally... Evil poison character. He's not rotten inside and out, but especially at this point in the arc for him He becomes more of a monster But I think in this moment he is genuinely part of himself at least thinking that no I do want to help other people and I do want to sort of help us to rise together And then eventually that all just sort of falls away and he thinks no, it's it's me I was the genius and sure I helped everybody else along and you know CC wrote the songs and and the dream were the vocalists and everybody was helping me, but if it weren't for me, thinking for everyone, none of us would get here. So that's where he goes. But I don't think he's a total inhuman being at the at this point in his arc. But yeah, stepping to the bad side, I really like how everybody sort of gets on board with this idea. They're like, yes, Curtis, we will rally around Curtis because we are all desperate, and in times of desperation, if there is at least one person with confidence who is speaking with confidence, looking towards the horizon, (laughs) beady-eyed, he seems to be really planning something, maybe something that has nothing to do with my... (laughs) with my livelihood or my being able to have a better life. Maybe he is just in it for himself, but I might as well ride the wave because otherwise, what am I going to do? Be left behind? There's nothing an artist hates more than the idea of being left behind. FOMO, it's a real thing. So everybody gets on board, and the song is great. It has this really uh, foreboding sense about it. It's this combination of this sort of grim, foreboding air, this sort of miasma mixed with determination. So it's, it's like a Grim optimism <laughs> It's this sort of militaristic march Toward that horizon determined To sort of cut through the fucking Bullshit all the weeds And get what we want at all costs And it's it's great it has this pounding Rhythm and it's, it's driving Ever forward and I love it So
2: don't think you're going You're not going Anywhere You're staying And taking your share And if you get afraid again, I'll be there. We are a family, like a giant tree, branching out toward the sky. We are a family, we are so much more than just you and I. We are a family,
1: like a giant tree. Growing strong
0: the biggest snow job in all of musical theater history. I love the fact that family, for all intents and purposes, it's ostensibly about what it is. It's the fucking title. Family. We're all a family. Come on. We all come together in the spirit of collaborative creation, creativity. Effie, come on. You don't want to be left out. FOMO. You know that you would hate to feel FOMO, yes? So please just stay with us. We need you. We can't be by to hire anyone else. Not right now. It would take up too much time. It would waste our resources. So please just stay where you are. Take orders. Shut up. But no, not shut up. Just shush. Just quiet, softer, little bit, just not so unique. Just stamp down everything that it is inside you. Anything that's inside you that is unique and sort of uh, coming from a place of just personal drive, Could you just shut down your personal drive, Effie? We're a family. And when you think... Don't think for yourself. Think for the family, Effie. It's got this sort of like... Beauti- it's beautiful. <laughs> I don't know what sort of classical composer voice. Ah, so beautiful. The song has this just really graceful, beautiful quality, but it's a lullaby, isn't it? It's meant to sort of lull Effie into a sense of complacency, and it completely works, even as she, as she is looking at them with a lot of side eye throughout the entire thing. And I don't think it's selfish for her to say things like, what about what I want? What about what I need? Because people... people... People are people, and people don't like to feel as if they're sort of being pushed aside, diminished. That's what's happening with Effie. It sucks. It really does suck. And they're not really giving her time. That's the thing. They're not giving her time and space to sort of process these emotions on her own. They're basically twisting her arm and saying, no, 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 you have no time to process, no time to sort of, no time to sort of grieve this loss. You have to really get on board or else. There's this sort of threat of or else that comes with the concept family. I I read too many advice columns, I suppose, because there's all these letters that get submitted to Slate's Dear Prudence column, let's say, that are all about, you know, I have this obligation to my family. I love my family, but they're treating me poorly. They're not taking me into consideration. They don't care about what I want or what I need. And the advice that is given in 2019 is, you know, that's not right. And you shouldn't allow yourself to be treated that way. And they shouldn't be treating you that way. So if anything, I, I would tell Effie in this moment, to run. Run, Effie. This song is a beautiful song, but do not listen to it. It is calling you into the rocks.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, The Crystal Room is proud to present the club debut of America's new recording stars, The Dreams.
2: Every man has his own special dream. Dream's just about to come true Life's not as bad as it may seem If you open your eyes to what's in front of you
0: be said regarding the title song of Dreamgirls, which is known as Dreamgirls. Come on, it's the title song. You know it's got to be called Dreamgirls. You know what I always think of when I think of this song? I just think of that one shot in the 2006 film adaptation where the camera just sort of swirls around Beyonce and the set, you know, the set design, wherever they are, I cannot remember where they play in that moment, but all of the lights around her just sort of swirl, and it is just this very simple idea. It's a fun little simple piece of camera work, but it, it is really just so magical, and I love that idea of just getting swept up via a simple camera move, and it works. It really does work. I don't think we give that movie enough credit. Everybody talks about how, you know, it was such a wonderful Comeback moment for Eddie Murphy, but the whole film really does work. Again, clunky moments here and there. Uh, You know, some of those new songs aren't exactly like barn burners. I think it's actually a little bit underrated. Am I wrong? Am I crazy? It doesn't seem like a lot of people are revisiting it. It doesn't seem like a lot of people are talking about it now, and I just think that's unfortunate because Dreamgirls, you know, in any other hands, it could have been a real disaster. Think about what that 1992 version would have been like. I think back then it would have been much, I think they would have taken out even more of the non-diegetic music, first of all. I think they would have stuck with the very sort of grounded, reality-based music, and I think they would have just ironed it out, and it would have been really boring and flat. But in 2006, we had the ability to really make it pop. I think that was the time that we needed that movie. And damn it, I should have rewatched it. I suppose is what I'm saying. <laughs> but I love that. I love this theme for the Dream Girls. It's interesting because it comes back at the end for that reunion performance, that sort of farewell performance that we talked about during the plot summary. And it's fascinating because this is. A movie at the end not a movie a musical a show about women at the end of the day yes but it's it's sort of fascinating to me that their theme is about what they can do for you the listener specifically uh men i would assume yes (laughs) i would like to think that this was a song written from a place of heteronormativity i don't think this is necessarily a gay anthem i guess we could co-opt it as such we love to co-opt the gay community (laughs) I don't... Oh, so boy. I don't mean to denigrate my own community by saying that. We're not little thieves. It's just that we like to, you know, sort of fun, have fun with things that are supposed to be heteronormative. Where the fuck am I going with this? Let's get back on track, Jonathan, shall we? Okay, I just think it's interesting how, you know, every... What is it? Every, every man. Every man has his own special dream. That's why I'm, you know, this is very clearly a song directed toward men. And it's just fascinating to me that their whole story sort of begins and ends as, like, this successful group. Their story begins and ends with this song, Dream girls, and it's just about what they can do for men. And that's sort of what the characters are having to deal with throughout the entire show. They are constantly asking themselves, What am I willing to do for men? What am I willing to do to sort of uphold a man's dreams? Curtis talks a lot about how his dreams are very important and how Dina is vital to them, you know, becoming a reality. And they also have to ask themselves, At a certain point, when do I need to just stop doing that? When do I need to stop? Acting in the interest of other fucking men, these fucking men in my life who consistently lie to me, act behind my back, fucking keep me from doing the, the simplest of things that I fucking am interested in, that I want to do with my goddamn life. At what point is enough fucking enough? That, that's the question that they deal with. And it's just funny to me that, that there, there is this moment at in that farewell performance where they're all just sort of looking at each other and they're having this very quiet understanding of, yes, like we did this together, and at the end of the day, we were always the ones on stage. We were singing, you know, CeCe's song. CeCe's a man, but CeCe's sort of always been on our side. But when we go on stage, the only people who are singing these songs are us. The women, and it's us together, and it's just ironic that the final song that they sing is again about upholding the dreams of men. It's just—it's an irony that I want to point out. I think it's worth discussing. I'm a little all over the map at this point. I'm gonna have a drink of water. You're gonna hear a clip from our next song. It's all over, and then I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna be refreshed, hydrated. I'm gonna be back.
2: There you are,
0: Emmy. I've been looking all over.
2: I turn my back and. On the line, you coulda warned me, but that woulda been too kind.
1: Warning you since Chicago to clean up your act. You've been late, you've been mean, giving all kinds of bullshit
2: flack. It's a lie, it's just I haven't been feeling that well. Effie, please, stop excusing yourself. You've been late, you've been mean, and getting fatter all the time. Now you're lying, you're lying, I've never been so thin. You're lying, you're lying, cause you're knocking off that piece who thinks she's better than everybody. She ain't better than anybody, she ain't nothing but common. Now who you call a common self-indulgent, self absorbing unprofessional. Yeah! Now you listen to me misblame it on the world See, I've put up with you for much too long I have put up with your bitching, i put up with your nagging, And uh. all your screams.
0: Gracious, I mean, no musical does a sung argument like Dream Girls does the sung argument. That's a terrible term, it really does not trip off the tongue. But you know what I'm talking about. I, I remember when we discussed Miss Saigon, there was a lot of yelling in that show, a lot of uh, quote-unquote melodic argumenting (laughs) and it was just such a drain, wasn't it? Listening to that nonsense, especially in Act 2 of Miss Saigon, it becomes just such a, a lump in the fucking, in your gut. It just sits with you and it doesn't go away and it just, it makes you sick after a while because it's just so one note and it really just bashes into your skull. I hate it. But I love listening to people argue in Dreamgirls. It's so much more dynamic and it doesn't really seem to take itself so grimly seriously as something you would find in a Miss Saigon. There is this pop, there is this vim and verve, this liveliness, because everybody really is fighting for their lives in a song like It's All Over. And it's a wonderful opportunity, especially as we are barreling towards the finale of Act One. It's this great opportunity, I mean from a writing perspective, to reiterate where everyone is coming from, because of course we know where Effie is coming from. She's furious over the fact that she's being replaced as a member of of the dreams, but we also get to hear from everyone else. We get to hear, you know, Cece, who has finally gotten to a point where even he can't defend his sister's behavior. We hear Curtis sort of uh, maintaining this corporate bottom line of like, shut up, you're done. There's no room for feelings anymore. I'm sick of dealing with your feelings. I've always had to sort of deal with that bullshit ever since I fucking first met you, but I'm not gonna babysit you anymore. And then we have the other women in the group, Dina and Laurel and even the new member, Michelle, uh, all coming together to sort of uh, uh, voice their frustrations toward Effie and how, you know, Michelle, for God's sake, I feel sorry for her because she's the latest member of the group, but as she says, she's just starting out in this business and she is desperate to not get involved in this drama bullshit. Michelle seems to understand that it's the drama that fucking undoes you in this business and she is so desperate to stay as far away from it as she can, but as Effie very handily points out, no, 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 no. you're There's blood on your hands too, honey, okay? If you're gonna replace me, you have to process at some point what you're doing to another person. It really is good. It's, it's just this intersectionality of viewpoints and needs and wants, and it's just so—it's just a joy to listen to. I just—it's—it's it's filled with a lot of like anger, and it, but it's not—it does—it's not a fucking bummer. It's not a downer. It's exciting to see these characters fight for what they want. It's exciting. It's not a bummer. Ah. And I- The cat about, and I am telling you I'm not going. And I want to take this opportunity to round back to the Tony Awards performance that I talked about earlier. I didn't really go into it. All I said was at the time that you should watch it. If you haven't watched it already, that is required viewing. And now it's time for me, in my sort of improvised sort of way, to really describe the impact Jennifer Holliday has on you as a viewer during that performance. I don't understand how I can even begin to do that this, first of all, because it seems nearly impossible. But there is a there's a burning intensity there with Jennifer Holliday. I mean, Jennifer Holliday was a gospel singer. I believe she was like 22 years old when she came onto the project. She was very young. And there is this, goodness gracious, this earth-shattering reality bending vibration within her. It's like she's being powered by a source that we can't even comprehend. I mean, everybody else on the planet is sort of powered by oxygen and blood. <laughs> like, everybody else is sort of running on the same elements, the same components. Jennifer Holliday, during her performance of, and I am telling you, I'm not going, it's like she's being powered by some sort of fucking electric orb inside her that's just sort of radiating this this cosmic energy. It's insane. Every inch of her, it really is, it's not even like classic, it's not even modern acting in any sort of real sense. It's sort of harkening back to this older style of acting. I don't want to say like Commedia dell'arte, but it the, the poses that she is striking, like everything is just so sharp and held. She'll change positions and then just sort of hold them, and every step has a purpose every step sort of shakes the earth every like gesture towards curtis has like this it's operatic is now uh, now that i think about it it has this very operatic quality to it this is her aria this is she is hitting this one emotional note which you see so often in opera this idea that like i'm going to be singing for the next five minutes and i'm going to be singing about singing about i should say my fury my Anger, and that's what this is. It's operatic, and I, I, I just, I love, I love when she throws her arm out at the end of this performance. She's leaning on this table, and she has her arm out. I love arms in theater I love the the intensity this idea that like light is shooting out of the fucking the atoms on the tips of your fucking finger and you could not have more concentration in that arm if you fucking tried you would die if you went any further and that's where she is it seems like Jennifer Holliday is going to just sort of burst into this like fucking fiery fury, it's, it's it's amazing. And her eyeballs are nearly coming out of her head. The, the voice is just sort of overpowering everything else about her and the audience goes absolutely fucking nuts. They go fucking crazy several times during this performance. There isn't an ability, a moment for the audience to truly applaud this song because Effie is sort of wiped out. She In that final moment of this song, she is always wiped out by the appearance of the newly formed dreams, this new trio of women that's just been formed. And she is wiped off the face of the earth. All of her power, all of her fury, it means nothing in the face of this sort of corporate machine that marches ever forward. It doesn't, it doesn't care about how you or I or anyone else feels about it. It consumes us. It wipes us out. The power in this machine, it, it's overwhelming. The fact that she can be sort of dusted off after all of that she's given her fucking heart and soul to us and she's laid bare everything that she has to that she has and she still gets wiped out like she's nothing like she's a fucking smudge she's a stain she's a mistake in the eyes of everyone else and it's it's the most it's one of the most devastating things in the world And it's one of the best fucking songs ever written in the musical theater canon. And uh, that's all I have to say. It just, goodness gracious, she is, she really is. She's something from another fucking planet. She is not of this earth. Jennifer Holliday is one for the record books. I don't have to say it, but I'm just, I'm gonna fucking say it anyway. I'm saying it now. changing is the act two rallying cry for Effie. So it's a a great counterpoint to And I Am Telling You I'm Not Going. And I really like I Am Changing a lot as well. I think that's the song that, I, I wouldn't say that it's underrated, but I feel like it's the song that most people sort of Maybe not forget, but just sort of realize all over again, like, oh yeah. Okay, so act two, yes, it has, I am changing in it. That's obviously something that I'm going to be looking forward to. We don't forget, we just sort of remember. We remember without forgetting, I guess is what I'm saying. I just, I really love those lyrics of, I'll change my life, I make a vow. Uh, what is the rest of it? Of course, that nothing's gonna stop me now. Like, it's not the lyrics so much like the words, you know, coming out of my stupid fucking gay white mouth don't really mean anything. But hearing them sung, that sort of hammer-like rhythm, that intensity. I, I like that idea that a, a vow through words when matched with music has to have that sort of very emphatic rhythm. And nothing's gonna stop Bam! me Fine. Now I really just there is nothing better than that. It's a fucking lightning bolt from the heavens and it's fantastic. Drag girls! There comes a time when the child's
2: got to grow. There comes a time when the woman's got to go. Mama said I am special. She said I've got to move. I am just as good. I'm even better than that's what she would that's say. What she would shine a shine. shine. In a shine. shine. In
1: first saw you,
2: I said, oh my, oh my. that's my dream.
0: gracious, talk about a lullaby that is meant to draw Dina into the rocks. I really, really like listening to When I First Saw You, but it is one of the more chilling songs, isn't it? Because Curtis just keeps talking about how, I mean, it's this idea that we've already talked about. Dina is his dream. And the emphasis is on the possession part of that phrase, that statement, that idea. There is a sentiment here that is really creepy and chilling. This idea that like, no, 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 Dina, you don't seem to understand. I love you, and with that love comes this sense of possession. You are mine, you're my fucking life raft. You have to be here to my right, because if you're not here, I will go absolutely fucking crazy. I have placed all of my fucking chips on you, you're mine. And there's that lyric pretty late into uh, the song where it becomes a duet. So at a certain point, Dina comes in and she's talking about, you know, there comes a time when a girl has got to grow. There comes a time when a woman's got to go. Great lyrics, by the way. I love Dina's part of the song. But Curtis, at one point, just sort of bellows. He says something like, they'll never take my dream from me. He sort of cuts through everything else to sort of really shout that to the heavens, like, no. I've had too much taken away from me. I've had to make too many compromises. No one is going to sort of dilute this dream. No one's going to sort of have a fucking say. I've had to collaborate with all these fucking dumb, dumb assholes. And I've had to push drugs in some way. But I'm not going to compromise when it comes to my wife. Your mine. Nobody else gets ya. And again, it's this wonderful crooner ballad. When Curtis keeps saying that phrase, I said, oh my, I said, oh my, that's my dream. It's so silky and rich. And you want to buy into it immediately. Any any man who sings to you like this, you will tell yourself, "I'm not going to listen to the words. The sound. How could I? How could I distrust a man who sounds this silky, this rich? Oh, it's just so delightful. <laughs> it's that it really is. It's this perfect spell that Curtis is playing on Dina, and oh, it's just so delightful. This score, Dreamgirls. That's how I'm going to end every song segment now. Dream girls! Want to sleep on Loretta Divine, so I wanted to ensure that we played a little bit of Ain't No Party which is Laurel's big song in act two it's her big fuck you moment directed toward Jimmy early and you know that sometimes this character uh, of Laurel this duet it th- th- wears out pretty quickly I I, I don't know I- the character's relationship with Jimmy is just a little bit exhausting to me it's not especially interesting I just sort of want her to leave a lot earlier than she does especially because at a younger age the character of Laurel seems much more in tune with who she is and what she wants and that sort of gets eroded by her time with Jimmy. I get that that's the whole point. It is sort of sad. It's such a bummer to watch. And I like that when I like that eventually yes, she does leave him. But throughout this whole argument I'm just sitting there going, "Honey, like, no." <laughs> All of this yelling, it's, it's just it has no effect. You have tried every tactic in the book. You've tried seduction. You've tried punishment. Nothing's gonna work. Jimmy's a fucking loser. He's a bum. He's destined to fade into obscurity, as Wikipedia tells us. But, you know, Loretta Divine is amazing. She's got this voice that, it has such a different quality than Jennifer Holliday's. Jennifer Holliday's is like this sort of broad, all-encompassing wave, and hers is more Loretta Divine's voice is more like this sort of white hot whip that just sort of cracks through everything and just sort of destroys concrete walls. It's a sonic blast is what it is. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to define this a little bit better. So Jennifer Holliday's voice is like this fucking lion's roar. And then let's say that Loretta Devine's voice is like a sonic blast. They're both like destroying everything in their path, but they, it's just different, just different shades of the same sort of strength and power. And I just wish that these, uh, at the end of the day, I feel for these characters, I guess is what I'm saying. I want them to sort of apply these, this supersonic mutant sound to something bigger and better than these simplistic dum dum men, these ridiculous sort of fucking ragdoll paper doll idiots that they have to deal with every day. I want them to ascend. Ascend, Laurel! Don't fucking waste your time and energy on Jimmy when you could be tearing down, I don't know, the Berlin Wall. Use your sound to tear down the Berlin Wall, Laurel.
1: I can't do it. I can't sing any more sad songs. There's gotta be some good times. Uh, Brian! Look, I'm going to give you a count off and the rest of you guys come on in when I tell you. One, two, three. Hit me, bop the bop. ba ba da ba Bop the bop. Yeah. Bop the bop. Hit me, bop the bump. One, two. Yeah, bass man. Give it to you. How? I got some friends.
0: I like the rap a lot. I know it's goofy, but I think it's goofy because Jimmy is a character that wouldn't necessarily have a Super deep context for rap. I think he is completely improvising this which I think is kind of amazing in and of itself Maybe he wrote it backstage. Maybe he's just been sort of playing around with a rap on the sidelines I don't know, but I I like the fact that he's he's this older guy that's sort of taking a dip He's putting his toe in the rap game for the first time because he's just so desperate to have have fun and change things up. He doesn't want to be some like boring ass fucking Perry Como Frank Sinatra crooner. He doesn't want to fucking play to like grizzled, r- increasingly wrinkled assholes. He just wants to be the guy that he was, you know, 15 years ago. And the rap is that moment. And of course, it all goes wrong when his pants drop, when he strips and he takes his pants off. Yes, that's when it goes wrong. But I think that up until that point, it's actually a delight. I like how the band sort of builds on itself, how they're playing off each other, and they are very much in line with this idea of having fun with Jimmy. Uh, yes, uh, you're saying we don't have to play these fucking shitty-ass slowpoke songs anymore? Fine, great, let's do a fucking rap. Whatever, it might be fucking nuts, but it might, it'll fucking break up the teenium. It'll be a story. That's why I like the rap. The only
2: trouble.
0: one night only, and I'm going to tell you right now, I absolutely have been singing these songs in the privacy of my own home. I'm not going to be one of those white people who puts themselves on camera and sings anything from Dream Girls, because that shit is always embarrassing, but if you haven't taken a moment to sort of push your way through that sort of very sexual not sort of, it is incredibly sexualized, this sort of forceful, rhythm- Fuck energy of one night only, that one night only, one, ooh, just that fucking rhythm, get the hips in it deeper deeper if you haven't taken a moment to just sort of push your way through that in the privacy of your own home why don't you just take a moment to do it now it's a delight and I like the disco version too I know we're supposed to think the disco version is sort of like this ooh this evil mutated xerox corporate copy of the original but I like both I like the original and the remix just think of it as a remix now what Curtis does in the context of the story yes that's terrible but did make a bop? Yes, CC, deal with the fact that this bop slaps, okay? If you can't admit that it slaps, you, you can hate Curtis all you want, but this arrangement slaps.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, in their farewell performance, The Incredible Dream.
0: wanted to make sure that you heard a little bit of hard to say goodbye my love it's just it's uh it's just just this light very perfume scented airy just delightful it's it's a Oh, it's like a, a truffle. It's like a chocolate-covered cherry in my mouth. Oh, it's just so delicious. Uh, we'll talk about ending on a, a little sweet treat. A fucking sweet treat. How did I do, right? Just sort of talking off the top of my head. I know it's a little bit more uh, fast-paced, a little bit more scattered than what you might be used to, but I liked this a lot. Maybe we'll do this more in the future. But for now, we're gonna get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. yeah hi <laughs> It's me, uh, Lola, from Damn Yankees. Hi, how you doing? You'll have to excuse me. It's been a long night. I'm the mistress of Satan himself. Beelzebub, old scratch, you know what I mean? And I just gotta tell you, it's a hard life. It's a hard life being the assistant to the devil. Can you just think about that for a second? I know that we're all familiar with Damn Yankees. I know we're all familiar with me, Lola, classic character from the musical theater canon. But I just want you to think about what it means to be the assistant, the girl Friday to the devil. I just want you to think about that. I, for the most part, live in hell. The deepest circle of hell. The seventh circle of hell. And I do everything for that motherfucker. Satan is my boss. He signs the checks. And I take those checks to a fucking hell bank. And you know what I get in exchange for those fucking checks? Tiny little fucking fire poker pitchforks. And that's our currency down in hell. Fucking fire pokers and pitchforks. And you know what I fucking buy? You know what I fucking buy down there? Five, six, seven, eight coffee. But it's hell, right? It's hell. It's fucked up down there. So five, six, seven, eight coffee, it's not the good shit it's not the good shit you you fucking earthlings have up there in the living world. It's not that ooh, rich mountain homegrown farmer donkey taste. You know, fucking, uh, what's that coffee brand with the donkey and it's got like the coffee bean bag on its back and there's the farmer with the straw hat. Oh, fuck. Whatever that brand is, fuck that. Five, six, seven, eight coffee. Oh, it's so much better than all of that. It's, well, I should say up there in the fucking land of the living. But down here, it's fucking ice cold. It's got a fuck. Rat's tail in it. That's our fucking straw. If we want a straw, a hollowed out rat's tail. I'm a sexy, beautiful woman. I'm a shapeshifter, actually. I can shapeshift in anything I want, and I'm just so desperate to get back to the real world where I can use real money to get a real cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. You know that old phrase that I like to chart out, churn out? Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. It's not true. I'm under the fucking fiery hoof heel of the patriarchy, and it fucking sucks. One day I'm gonna slit that motherfucker's throat. I'm gonna slit the devil's throat and I'm gonna drink whatever the fuck comes out of it. And it's gonna be a lot better than the five, six, seven, eight coffee we got downtown. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to tell you that so you can better appreciate your own lies and better appreciate five six seven eight coffee. You can count on it. As for me, I'm gonna be counting my my fucking pitchforks and fire pokers so i can suck on another rat tail gotta go I Final thoughts regarding Dreamgirls. To begin, I want to provide an overview of my thoughts on some of the musicals we've covered in the past, shows that tried to address race and stumbled in the process. No Strings invokes race while refusing to acknowledge race, which is pretty ridiculous. I don't think I need to do a lot when it comes to relitigating that show, considering we just dropped our episode on it last week, but a reminder seemed necessary. This strange, stubborn dismissal of race is ameliorated somewhat by the existence of a few undeniably great tunes, but it's an itch that most audiences will want to scratch no matter how hard you try to dissuade them. Don't think about race! Well, people do, okay? Miss Saigon is a miserably cynical East meets West tragedy that relies on the stupidity and impotency of its characters to ensure that its lead comes to an untimely end. It's an absolute mess, and it doesn't help how the original production included Yellowface, and the score is generally a gigantic snooze. Ragtime fares better when it comes to providing a worthwhile score, but its reach extends far beyond its ability to address issues of race in America. It's self-important yet intentionally muddled, and I can all but see the writers patting themselves on the back for tackling the tough side of history. Avenue Q condones racism while thumbing its nose at PC culture, which I find to be disgusting and woefully immature. The songs, the songs are trifles. It's all a bunch of claptrap hooey. Don't even get me started on that. And then finally, we have South Pacific, which, like Miss Saigon, believes itself to be a sobering examination of what it means when two worlds collide, but one world is represented by a swath of developed white characters, while the other is represented by a young woman who never speaks and a character named Bloody Mary who is essentially unknowable. It's a flop, and the perfume scented, Vaseline-soaked score is an Ativan to my system. You'll notice how, in re-evaluating these musicals, I'm weighing their clumsy relationships with race against their ability or inability to offer up a memorable score. This all plays into the long speech you're about to hear. I'm hoping it sounds like a speech, at least, could come off It's nothing more than one musical man's barely coherent ramblings, but we'll see. So if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you'll often hear me asking this question. Who would want to play this character, Character X? What self-respecting man or woman would want to play Character X? Because a lot of musicals are packed with thin, occasionally outright insulting roles, and I always feel bad for the people who have to try to bring them to life. With Dreamgirls, I don't find myself asking these questions or feeling concerned because the characters within Dreamgirls seem real to me. They're going through a great deal of high-anxiety backstage drama, but they never read as characters or stereotypes, imitations of humanity, if you will. All of them are imperfect, everyone is fighting for what they want or feel is right, and I can track their motivations. The same cannot be said of characters within shows like Miss Saigon, South Pacific, or Ragtime, which think they have a lot to say about their POC characters, but are merely sermonizing out of misplaced, say it with me, self-importance. Girls also avoids falling into the No Strings trap. It could have been a pulpy backstage drama that made no mention of race, but that would have been bizarre. Tom Ian and Henry Krieger clearly understood that. Race absolutely plays a part in the world of music, and so that had to be acknowledged. At the same time, Ian and Krieger don't try to speak on matters or issues they would have no reference for as white men. They know black artists were angered by the theft of their music by white producers and white artists. Everyone knows that, so it's included as a vital part of the narrative. But beyond that, these characters are simply allowed to live their lives. Ian and Krieger back off and let them play off each other because they know that trying to speak any further to the black experience would come off as condescending and embarrassing. If, as a white writer, you can manage to do that, acknowledge the existence of race and racism and how it affects people of color without acting like you're the Caucasian MLK Jr. in the process, I believe that's as much as you can do before focusing on on the development of a great script and score. And Dreamgirls has both of those things. Ah yes, but isn't Dreamgirls a case of art imitating life? Aren't these white men just co-opting black history and imitating it, making it more palatable for Broadway audiences, which are historically majority white? Oh, absolutely. Look, this is a prickly fucking thorn bush, and I don't in any way want to be the person that's like, Yeah, it's complicated, but I just like it. So there, no more talking. But when all is said and done, my gut really is kind of saying that. I'm not trying to shut down a conversation in any way. Yes, this is weird. This is obviously problematic, objectionable. But when compared to everything we've discussed, I don't feel too terribly bad for giving it a pass, Put another way, the team behind Dreamgirls doesn't seem to be fetishizing its time with characters of color, whereas a show like Miss Saigon might as well come out and say, oh yeah, characters of color, wow, wow, okay. This is the real shit, fuck yeah. We're gonna get a real kick out of this. Make way, the white guys are here and we're saving the world. Now who is supposed to be handling our luggage while we're here? Nobody better lay a finger on my finger." Hua! As always, these words and opinions are spilling out of a white man's mouth, and I welcome any dissenting opinions, especially from listeners of color. Kind of seems like John was bending over backwards to justify his love of dream girls, right? Kind of felt like he was doing backflips. No, <laughs> no, no, no backflips. Just uh, yoga. Just some light stretching. Yoga stretching. Oh my God, stretching. No, maybe that isn't the best metaphor. Ah! Now, for your edification, in 1982, the Tony Award winner for best musical was none other than none. And the additional nominees were Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and Pump Boys and Dinettes. I'm one of those people who respects Nine from a distance, but would never consider themselves a fan. The score is confident and fairly rich, but I find it to be chilly more than anything else. Nine, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you to step aside and allow Dreamgirls to walk home with the big prize of the night. Congratulations, Dreamgirls. You may have been written by a bunch of white guys, but you've effectively cast a spell on me. I am here to serve you and no one else. Joseph and the Pump Boys can eat my butt. Now you might be wondering to yourself, How does Dreamgirls rank against all of the other musicals that have been covered on the podcast? Well, I'm going to tell you right here now. Dreamgirls is number two on our list right behind a chorus line at number one and right above Gypsy at number three. Now as always if you're interested, if you want to find out how all of these shows have been ranked at this point you can go to our Twitter profile Musical Man Pod and you can click on the pinned tweet that will take you to a Google Sheet and the ranking is on the second tab. Alternatively if you are not on Twitter and if you would like to email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com I can send you a link to that Google sheet and you can bookmark that shit and you can look at it whenever you want baby whenever you want show related ephemera we have two little items right now for you well let's get a clip from NBC's 60th anniversary celebration Uh, this is a performance of the song We Are a Family by a variety of sitcom stars from NBC Patty, Benny, take it away NBC is proud today if it's current Family Comedy Series
2: From Jeannie and her bottle To father knowing best Cheers to Punky Brewster Family ties and all the rest Each week they've entertained us Proving life is just a game Now each situation different But the spirit was the same Like a giant tree, branching out towards the sky. We are a family, and we're so much more than just you and I. We are a family, like a giant tree, growing stronger. Growing
1: We are we are a family this dream is for all of us this, this one can't be real no one can stop us now because of how we
2: feel
0: hi Molly
2: hi Neil. oh god i love your new show not only do i love your
0: show child i love your singing get out of here <laughs> Now, this clip features Nell Carter, Charlotte Ray, B. Arthur, Marla Gibbs. I'm sorry, B. Arthur was listed on screen as Beatrice Arthur. Thank you very much. Marla Gibbs, Alfonso Ribeiro, and Soleil Moonfry. And they are all on this indoor studio set that almost defies description. Almost. It's a gargantuan ivory white house interior, surrounded by puffy clouds, and the whole thing would seem to exist both within and beyond space and time. We get a wide shot of this set near the end of the video, and I would describe it as heavenly if it weren't also so cold and antiseptic. It's disconcerting! If you told me these actors had been abducted by and were putting on a play for ancient aliens, I wouldn't be surprised. We Are a Family is not an especially challenging song. You'd think most people would be able to rise to it, but none of these actors managed to impress. Even Nell Carter, who we know to be a Broadway gem, fails to inject the tune with life. At first, I had no idea why she seemed so disgruntled, but then I remembered that Dreamgirls was initially developed as a vehicle for her until she dropped out to star in NBC's Give Me a Break. Oh, the irony. Give me a break. With that in mind, it makes total sense why she'd be grumbling her way through this 7 a.m taping. Perhaps I should underline my point further. She seems fucking pissed. I honestly expected her to ring Soleil Moonfry's tiny little neck. Think of it this way Nell Carter. You had an astonishing run with 8 Misbehavin' and no one could take that away from you. Not even little Soleil Moonfry. And our second bit of show related ephemera this week is none other than audio of the song And I Am Telling You I Am Not Going as sung by Miss Lake Dardanelle also known as Naomi Shore. Patty, Benny, let's get that now.
2: Well singing and I am telling you I'm not going is Miss Lake Dardanelle Naomi Shore <laughs>
0: is a video that a lot of people knew about. It went viral a long time ago, and I I just now came across it this week, so I finally caught up with the zeitgeist in that very small way. Uh, Bad singing, right? This is why uh, white, White women shouldn't be singing, and I'm telling you, I'm not going, especially if you're going to be doing a 90 second cut of what I believe is a nearly five minute fucking song. I don't think you're going to be able to really express the trajectory of that song in 90 seconds, the cuts. I mean, did you fucking hear the cuts, the jumps and leaves that that version of the song took? Goodness gracious. There's also a big response video called Redemption, the Naomi Shore story or something like that. And it's her sort of reacting years later to all of the backlash And she's talking about how, oh, I took voice lessons and now I'm going to sing the song for you again. And she does... It's better. It's much better. I'm going to give her that credit. It's much better. It's on pitch throughout from moment one, A to Z. But it's, come on, you really had to post a video called Redemption? All right, Naomi. All right. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, YOLO, Dodo. Everyone ready? Then away we go. (laughs) ¶¶ Alright, we are stepping off of the musical carousel as I speak. And we are approaching, ah, it's coming through the fog here, through the mist. What's our next show? Uh, well, you know what? It can't be that one. <laughs> it can't be that. We cannot talk about Passing Strange again. I'm sorry, Musical Carousel. I I do tend to defer to you whenever possible, but not in these instances. Thank you. Let's hit the road again. Oh, okay, so <laughs> I, I'm not going to play the music cue for you again, but we just took another spin. Just took another spin on the carousel, and now we have landed on, oh, the Wedding Singer. <laughs> (laughs) Fine. That'll be a lovely Christmas present to us all. 2006 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 285 performances. Not exactly a stellar run, I should say, but uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. Oh, that'll be fairly easy. Good. This has been a sort of a (laughs) long month between my podcasting responsibilities and my day job, if you couldn't tell that from my opening segment. So that's going to be our December 25th. Christmas episode, oh yes, it's true. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. You can donate one, three, five, or $10 a month. Uh, if you donate $1 a month, you will get a verbal shout-out each and every week here on the podcast. Let's do that now. Thank you very much. Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris J.C., Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. $1 a month, donors also get bonus episodes dedicated to the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the first trailer for the film Cats, and ABC's The Little Mermaid Live. I am also planning on releasing a bonus episode for this tier that will be a full review of the Cats film, so keep an eye out on that. It's coming, baby. It's coming for all of us. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. Also, now available, uh, I believe three episodes now. The third episode will be dropping right now, this very same day. The third episode of Wildcats Everywhere, the High School Musical podcast. In this latest episode we discuss the film High School Musical 2. Oh, how I rant and I rave. I think the, the people who are listening to Wildcats Everywhere are really getting a kick out of it. If you have $3 to give each and every month, why not, why not just give 3 bucks? You get access to Wildcats Everywhere. Now if you give 5 a month, $5 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You also go to access to all 12 episodes of season one of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and you get access to our ongoing series. It's a review series for the Broadway and Chicago productions that come through this fair city of ours, Chicago, Illinois. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned. Plus, access to The Snub Club, a special monthly series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Coming out uh, Christmas Day, our episode on Aida, yes, Aida. Past subjects include Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahoolie, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, The Bridges of Madison County, and *A Doll's Life. I forgot to mention a doll's life. That was our November entry. Forgot to say that last week. Now, your donations will go toward the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, and offsetting Podbean hosting costs. If we ever bring in $100 or more in total donations, I will produce M3, The Movie Musical Man. That will be a monthly series for which I I watch movie tr- movie musical trilogies. I have it written down right in front of me, and I fucking... Rah, I got it wrong. I watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. All right, uh, it's uh, something we can look forward to if we ever get to that point. If you are listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating and write out a review. We have 26 written five-star reviews. When we get to 30, I will post a special episode dedicated to Disney's Descendants. Uh Trilogy! Yeah, that's right. Stream the show at musicalmanpod.podbean.com and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Have you ever seen a high school production of Dreamgirls where all of the women were white? Ooh, I want to hear about it. Tell me, tell me, please. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. And there's that doorbell, baby. Uh, you know what that means, though? That sound, you know what that means? You, yes, just when the fun is starting. I have not written down. It's right in front of me. Why am I stumbling? Ay, ay, ay. Just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, Auf Wiedersehen, and good night. self-important yet intentionally muddled and I can all but see the writers patting themselves on the back for tackling the